Welcome to Music 316 for Monday the 16th of November 2009. As I said, I think I'll have the exams back tomorrow so we can discuss them when we get them back. And now we're moving on into Unit 3 of our survey of Asia. This is West Asia that we'll be studying for the next couple of days. And you should print out the West Asia handout and bring it to class and do the reading on West Asia. When you look at the reading for West Asia, you'll see there are two titles listed. The two titles are the same reading, listed with two different titles. And I don't know why the library did it that way. They seem, seem to like um, having duplicate things on the list. You only have to read one of those. The other one is just the same as the one you read for West Asia. Like any good neighbors, West Asia and Europe have had a lot of problems and a lot of conflicts. That goes all the way back over 2,000 years when it looked like Asia would become a part of Europe when Alexander the Great sent his invading army across the narrow waters separating Greece and Macedonia from Asia and his armies marched all the way through West Asia and on into India and it looked for a couple of years like maybe all of West and South Asia would be added to the Greek Empire for what was becoming the Greco-Macedonian Empire. And then Alexander died and the whole thing fell apart. Ever since then, there have been fighting and struggles back and forth between, between Asia and Europe. And even, even before then, if you count things like the Trojan War and so on. So it's not surprising, perhaps, that the West Asian music that we know best is military music. This is a Turkish military band that accompanied the Turkish armies that tried to invade and conquer all of Eastern and Central Europe. And they did conquer a large share of Eastern Europe and they almost made it to Vienna before they were turned back in a, um, in a military defeat. And they held on to Greece and the present-day Yugoslavia and parts of Eastern Europe for several centuries more. So they did establish a strong foothold in Europe. There had been fighting before the Turks ever came to West Asia because the Turks have their homeland in Central Asia. And that's why we have Turkestan and all of the Stan countries out there in Central Asia. These were the original homelands of the Turks. With one exception, by the way, I just noticed on the midterm, I didn't tell you that Pakistan wasn't one of those countries. Pakistan didn't even exist until 1947, and it used to be a part of India, and so it's a part of, West, of, of South Asia. But the other Stan countries up there in Central Asia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, all of those countries were originally homelands of Turkish peoples. And some of those Turks migrated west starting about a thousand years ago and ended up in what today we call Turkey, but which used to be the Eastern Roman Empire. Before the Turk, of course, the Arabs had moved into a lot of areas of West Asia and North Africa and even parts of Europe where they hadn't been before, embarking on wars of conquest after the formation of Islam in the 7th century. And before that, the Europeans had embarked on wars of conquest in Asia and North Africa. So, for instance, the Greeks under 
the reign of the Ptolemaic kings of Egypt uh, took over Egypt and other Europeans moved in and conquered other parts of the Middle East. So there was warfare and fighting back and forth, back and forth. Possibly the greatest advance in warfare between Europe and Asia took place with the invention of a real weapon of mass distraction, and that was the Turkish military band. Because the Turks developed this kind of band with these big bass drums and clanging metal cymbals and kettle drums and trumpets, brass trumpets, and jingling bells on a staff. This This band accompanied the Turkish armies up into Eastern Europe, into Greece, into Macedonia, into Yugoslavia, uh, or what would become Yugoslavia, into Eastern Europe, and everywhere it went, it terrified the inhabitants of Europe. The Europeans had nothing to compare with this. Yes, the Europeans had as good arms as the Turks. They had good weapons, but they didn't have a weapon that could terrorize the whole population the way that this military band did. What did the Europeans have? You've seen the paintings of George Washington's time with the guy playing a drum, somebody playing a flute. What's that going to do to scare anybody? Huh? No, you need this blaring brass sound. And you need boom, boom on the drums. And you need crash bang on the cymbals. And I mean, this stuff sounds like war is coming. And that's what happened. Some of the armies facing them just ran away from the noise, from the confusion. It seemed like all hell was breaking loose. And European populations abandoned their villages and their towns and got out of the way of this juggernaut that was rolling down to destroy them, or so it seemed to them. And the European kings really paid attention to this. So finally, when the fighting was over and the peace treaty was signed, and the king of Poland sent his ambassador to the imperial court at Constantinople, today is Istanbul, and he met the empire of the emperor of the Ottoman Turks. The emperor graciously said, welcome, O distinguished ambassador. We appreciate the greetings of your honorable lord and ruler, the king of Poland. Is there anything we can do for our friend, the king? And the ambassador said, oh, your great majesty, there is just one thing that the king of Poland would like to ask from you. Can you send us one of your military bands? And the emperor said, Sure, I'll send you a military band. And so he calls down to the, uh, to, the, to the band headquarters and says, okay, pack up a band and send it off to Warsaw. And so off they go up to Warsaw, not playing their instruments so as not to scare anybody. But when they get to Warsaw, they go into formation and they start playing their music and they start teaching all of the European, that is, all of, the, all of the Polish musicians to play Turkish instruments and to play military band music. And as soon as they've got them all, all taught how to play properly and how to march 
properly and how to make as scary a noise as possible when they pack up and go back to Constantinople and Istanbul, as it's, as it's coming to be called. And um, the Polish army now has their own military band, and they start teaching other Polish bands to play. So you get these Polish military bands. And the Tsar of Russia says, oh my god, I can't have this. This little king of Poland has one of these wonderful Turkish military bands, so he sends his ambassador to ask the emperor of the Turks. And sure enough, you get Turkish military bands appearing in Moscow and all of the other capitals of Europe as each country rushes in the new arms race to be the leader in military bands. And so military bands spread like wildfire across Europe, all the way from one end to the other. And within a few years, they totally blow away all of the old fife and drum bands with the guy with the flute and, um, um, and so on. Now they've got real military musical technology to wreak terror and fear upon the people that they're, that, that, that they're fighting. And so this was a military revolution for the European kings, for the Euro European um, kingdoms. And of course, you know the rest of the story. The Europeans spread military bands to their colonies in places like um, Australia or French West Africa or a little place called America uh, that um, the colonial masters, in the case of America, for instance, the British, uh, but also the French and the Spanish, uh, who also had big stakes in, in, in the Americas, thought, uh, well, you know, they, need, they needed a powerful army too. I mean, you know, before then, um, the Indians had their drums and their, uh, their, their war chants, and that was a lot scarier than the flute and the drum. Um, but now they could move in these big military bands and scare anybody to death, and so they did. And military bands swept across Americas and Africa and the Pacific Islands and everywhere in the world. Pretty soon, there were very few places in the world. Even the places that didn't get conquered by Europe were asking, please, can't somebody send us a military band? As soon as they heard it, it was magic. You know, it was something you just couldn't ignore. It was addictive for powerful countries, for countries that wanted to compete militarily and politically to be leaders in their regions or leader, leaders in the world, yeah. Did you say this all happened after the peace treaty was signed? After what? After the peace treaty was signed? Yeah. It happened after? Yeah, yeah, they couldn't, they couldn't really exchange bands while they were fighting because they needed them to, to scare and destroy each other. I mean, the, you know, the Turks were hanging on to them and the Europeans were running away from them, basically. So, once the military bands are there in the army, of course, not everybody in armies gets killed and eventually they retire and go home to their neighborhoods or to their villages. And some of them missed playing in their military bands. They brought their trumpet or their drum or whatever home with them and they found other people who wanted to play and they started bands at home. And so the military band started to morph into the marching band that you find in Fourth of July parades or at football games. Military band moved into the schools and 
became your school band. Military bands started to evolve their own local music. So they weren't just playing Turkish music anymore. And you started getting composers uh, like John Philip Sousa, who specialized in writing music for the military band, the marching band, and became very popular composers because this became very popular music. Perhaps this is the most popular music the world has ever known because it's spread everywhere. Places that you can't find a, a recording of rock music or rap music, you can find military bands from the jungles of Central Africa to the Himalaya Mountains in Asia. The military bands are there. Other kinds of music from other places in the world are probably not as numerous, not as widespread as the military music. Perhaps this is the world's most important music. In Europe, all of the major composers exposed to the military music just fell in love with it. They were so impressed by those big, powerful sounds. And people like Haydn, a military-style symphony. Mozart wrote an opera, Abduction from the Seraglio, based on Turkish characters in the Turkish setting and included Turkish instruments in the orchestra. Beethoven wrote his most famous symphony, the Ninth Symphony, with a chorus at the end about all men becoming brothers. And in the middle of all men becoming brothers, what should he have show up with a Turkish marching band playing? Ta-da, 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 to a march rhythm. And Turkish instruments, triangles and cymbals and drums and trumpets and the military instruments playing this nice little sort of dancey piece that foretells all humans becoming brothers. They called this kind of music Ola Turka, or in the Turkish style. It was a big wave of popular composing in an Asian style. And so it swept the world of classical music too, not just military music, not just village bands, not just high schools, but the concert halls, the great concert halls of, of Europe, the royal palaces of Europe and the public halls were full of Turkish military style music. Big important music. And where did it come from? Actually, it came out of the depths of Central Asia, somewhere out there in the stands and nobody knows for sure exactly. But the precursors of the Turkish military band had been there for a long time until they started gathering into a bigger and louder ensemble with the Turkish military conquest of Constantinople and Turkey. And from there, they spread to the whole world. So arguably the most important music in the world, almost certainly the most popular music ever invented. Between the 14th and 16th centuries, These scenes illustrate Ottoman victories in Hungary and on the Danube. Everywhere the Janissaries like these went to do battle, the Mehter bands led the way. The bands are called Mehter, and that is on your handout under example one, M-E-H-T-E-R. 
The people who played them, the musical instruments, are called Janissary. Janissaries. The Janissaries were Christians. They were not Muslims. The Turkish Empire and most of the Turks were Muslims. But the Janissaries were originally young boys born in Christian villages within Turkish territory. The Turkish Empire gave a tax exemption to those villages. They did not have to pay tax, unlike the Muslim villages, except that they had to pay a tax of one boy every X number of years to be a Janissary. The Janissaries were brought to Istanbul, the capital, and raised as wards of the emperor in the palace grounds. They were raised to be Muslims and they were trained to be soldiers and government functionaries, government officials, and some of them were trained to become musicians. And these were the members of the Meter bands. They were known as the most loyal of the Turkish soldiers because unlike the Muslim Turkish soldiers, they grew up away from their families and they didn't know their families and they didn't, most of them, experience any personal loyalties and there was a lot of really bitter feeling about this among the uh, Christian subjects of the empire because they said they've taken our children away and turned them against us and it was true that by and large the um, Janissaries would fight even more fiercely against Christian enemies than the Muslim soldiers, the ones who had, had been born as Muslims. But the real reason for doing this and raising them that way was so that the emperor could have completely loyal soldiers, loyal to himself, without loyalty to friends and family, to home and village or neighborhood, without loyalty to other members of the nobility who might have prestige or power locally, a local warlord might be able to turn his own personal soldiers against the emperor, and Ottoman emperors lived in constant fear of being deposed and assassinated by their own followers. They decided that the only way to be safe was to have soldiers who were completely loyal to themselves. And so this was the cause of the institution of, of, of the Janissaries. The Janissaries were very successful for the emperors until by the 17th century there was so much bad feeling that the institution was abolished and they quit drafting the young boys and making them become Janissaries. That then led to the eventual decline of the Meter bands as well, which had been populated by Janissaries, and that was one reason why the emperor was willing to give away military bands was because now his band musicians would be out of a job. There would be a lot of un unemployed musicians around, and so if he could pick up some of the expense for their support from the um, European kings, uh, that was so, so much to the better. The bands symbolized the sultan's power. If the band stopped playing in a battle, the troops might lose heart and flee. In this painting of the Meher band, most of the instruments can be seen. The men seated in the left foreground are playing nakare, small timpani drums. Standing to their left are the Zorna players, 
The Zorna is a double reed cylindrical bore aerophone sounding something like an oboe. In the background are the huge bass drums called Dabul, next to them the Chevgan. The Chevgan is a staff hung with bells. In the right foreground is the Boru, a kind of trumpet. Each regiment of the Ottoman army had its own Mehter band, sometimes with as many as 100 musicians. These bands made a huge amount of noise. Contemporary observers reported that when they pass all playing at the same time, the noise presses men's brains out of their mouths. This staff with the metal bells attached, where have we seen something like that? Buddhist. Japan. Japan, yeah. Where? The Buddhist monastery. Remember, the monk was blessing the car for its new owner, and he was singing a song where he shook a staff like that. Well, this is the descendant of that staff. The Buddhist monk staff migrated up into Central Asia where it morphed into a military instrument rather than an instrument of peaceful religious meditation and practice. Strange things happen with musical instruments, but strange things happen with music. But I want to take a break before we see this and hear the actual example of Mater music that we have on our CD. CD number four, example one. What would be the right volume? That's a little too much for me. Hard of hearing though I am. But the actual bands were louder than that. The big military versions. Still got that one, two, one, two marching rhythm. One thing that's unfamiliar to most of us is the singing, because just about every military band tradition has cut out the singing and just play the instruments. But the original Turkish version did include singing, always by a group of men, as I suppose you might expect with an army marching to war.
course, there aren't any Janissaries anymore. And just like happened in Europe and America and elsewhere in the world, the military band spread into the villages and into the city neighborhoods and into schools and so on. And so the musicians that you see on the video are students at a university in Istanbul. Uh, the ones that you heard on the CD are uh, village people who are getting together and playing for the fun of it in another musical club like we find in other parts of the world, China and Indonesia and so on. At the end of that clip, you heard a sound of someone singing, or it sounded, sounded like singing. What it actually was was the call to prayer sung from the tower or minaret of a mosque, a Muslim place of worship. The call to prayer is sung five times a day at Pacific times, and when it's sung, all Muslims are supposed to stop what they're doing and face toward Mecca and pray. The call is sung by a muezzin. There are several ways to spell that. This is probably the most common spelling. Muezzin is a prayer caller, the one who climbs up in the tower of the mosque and sings a call to prayer. Here is a call to prayer from Syria. Example two. This sounds like singing. It has a scale of musical pitches, higher and lower. It has melody chains. That's fairly fancy singing there. Etc. I mean, it's not just one or two notes. There is a lot of musical movement here. But there are those long breaks in between. It takes a long breath in between parts of the singing. (coughs) 
So it's kind of like music that you might hear somewhere else, and it's, it's kind of different from most music. Is it music or isn't it? The practitioners of this art, the people who sing it, the people who listen to it, say, no, this is not music. It would be wrong to use music for this kind of religious practice. This is a call, it's a summons to prayer, and you use the voice, but it is different from music, because music is something that can lead you into sin, and this is pure religion, it cannot lead you into sin. The word for music All muziki is from the Greek language and it has been Arabized into all muziki. All muziki is the music that you would dance to. Music that you might sing a song to your lover. Music that you might sing while drinking. Music that you listen to just for sensuous enjoyment. And that is not what the call to prayer is. This is not music. This is religious vocalization. That happens to have some features that resemble music but it's not music. Now we run into ideas of things that sound musical but are not music in many different cultures. When I first wanted to study the Chinese argu, I heard a wonderful argu player, just played beautiful, beautiful argu, music. And I went to him and said, could I take some lessons from you? And he said, well, I can teach you Argo, but I can't teach you music. I said, why not? He said, because I don't know any music. I said, what do you mean? You play beautiful music. He said, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I play opera. I don't play music. Opera is not music. And so I said, oh, well, okay, teach me opera then. And he was ha happy to teach me, teach me to play some arhu, opera arhu, as long as I didn't ask him to play any music. What is music, anyhow? Do your parents ever hear something you're listening to and say, that's not music? Or do you have some relatives who react that way? There are, there are people who say that. Different people have different ideas of what music is. And for the purposes of a class like this, I don't know that, that we can give God's true answer to what is music and what is not, because there are a lot of different opinions about music in the world, just like there are a lot of different kinds of music in the world. But to be able to study all of it, I think we need some kind of a concept like paramusical sounds and performances to talk about things that sound musical, that have some musical characteristics, like a melody that goes up and down. Oh. 
Oops, I can't go up that high. That's kind of musical because it has a melodic movement to it. But nevertheless, that the people who perform it say is not music. Thinking of it that way, we could look at something like the Adan, the call to prayer, as a paramusical performance, a vocalization of the call to prayer using some musical techniques like melodic movement, but that isn't considered music by the people who make it and use it. There are other kinds of performances too in the Islamic world. There are some beautiful performances of verses from the Quran that people get together and sing, and they sing them to just exquisite, nice melodies accompanied by musical instruments and by drums, and they sing them together. And you say, oh, that's lovely music, but no, it's not music to them. It can't be music because it is the Quran. It's a religious book, and you can't have music with something as good and true as the Quran. Yeah. Could you just quickly explain what paramusical was again? I didn't quite. I'm sorry, could I explain what again? Paramusical, I didn't quite get that, but paramusical. Para means like, okay? Like paramedic, do you know that word? Medic is a nickname for doctor. Paramedic is somebody who does things like a doctor, but who isn't a doctor. They're not fully trained as a doctor, but they do know some medical techniques. They do, they do know some ways of treating you. Well, para, paramusical is not music, according to the people who make it, but it has features like music. It can sound like music, and it can even fool us if we didn't know that the people who do it don't consider it music, like my friend who played the, uh, the Arhu in Chi Chinese opera. It wasn't music to him, yeah. Oh, that's a good question. It is not improvised, but they don't have a written notation. They learn it from an expert who knows how to do it. Yeah. It's in Arab language, right? I'm sorry. It's Arabic. Right? It's in Arabic, yeah. It's sung in Arabic. So it can be written? I'm sorry? It can be written down? It, the, the words can be written down, yes. The words are written down. Um, in fact, there are books published in very various Islamic countries that give you the whole text for the, um, for the daily prayer ceremony. So, but um, pe people don't use the written versions when they perform. There are many different Muslim attitudes toward music. Some Muslims consider music to be absolutely sinful and awful. When I say that, we're talking about all muziki, that is secular music, dance music, drinking songs, etc. not about call to prayer. Some of you may have heard that when the Taliban ruled Afghanistan, they had cassette tapes hanging from the lampposts. They also had the dead bodies of their enemies hanging from the lampposts, and it meant exactly the same thing. They were executing those tapes. They were putting them to death because they had this horrible, sinful music on them, and that music deserved to die. And many musicians had to leave Afghanistan in fear of their lives during the Taliban rule. Now, that is one extreme in the Muslim world. The other extreme in the Muslim world is a belief that music can be a way to salvation, that music really 
does lead you to God in special ways. We have to consider that whole range of beliefs from a fear and hatred of music on one side to a love and embracing of music on the other side. That's why it's important that you read the reading for this week, Sakata's Music in the Mind or Music and Islam. So we'll see you tomorrow and talk some more about music in Islam.